Recently on Sunday Extra, we spoke with the first independent human rights expert to visit the 30 men still held at Guantanamo Bay by the US after more than 20 years. Fanula Neerline is UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms While Countering Terrorism. She's held that position since 2017, and it comes with quite the travel itinerary. This week, the Special Rapporteur released her latest report after a six-day visit to Syria, and in particular, northeast Syria, which included visiting prisons and the detention camps Al-Hol and Al-Raj. Over 50,000 people have been held in those camps for many years, and among the population are nationals of 57 countries, including Australia. Special Rapporteur, thank you very much for speaking with us again on Sunday Extra after another harrowing visit. Yeah, it was a very difficult visit. You know, maybe one of the uh, challenges of this this role I have is that, and it's also the privileges of visiting places that no one else goes, but also trying to bring light into places that are very, very dark. And this was in many ways a very dark trip. Yeah, could you describe the Al-Hol and Al-Raj, the so-called camps as they're described that you visited? Give us a sense of how many people are in the camps and the conditions that you saw there. So when we arrived in northeast Syria, it was blistering heat. It was over 50 degrees, so extreme temperatures. Al-Hol and Al-Raj, which I describe as detention facilities, they're not camps in any traditional sense because no one can leave. You don't choose to leave. You can only leave at the agreement of the detaining authority who had given me permission to enter the camps, which I'm grateful for, but it was also an entry point into an assessment of really a place of deep and grim challenge from a human rights perspective. If we take Al-Hol, we've got over 44,000 people there, the vast majority of whom are children under the age of 12. So over 60% of the population is a child population. Water has to be trucked in. There's inadequate water. So people in that heat are struggling just to get enough water to drink, much less to keep themselves clean and healthy. Food is also brought in by the World Food Program. There's no other way to get food. The tents are flimsy. Everything I've ever heard about them is absolutely true. They're not really a place where children should be growing up. There's no good sewage system. And there are thousands and thousands, 40,000 plus people hemmed into this facility with literally no way to leave. You mentioned the detaining authority. Who is the detaining authority? And I suppose we should just recap how it is that most of these people came to be in these camps. Sure. So the detaining authority is the Syrian Democratic Forces supported um, by a coalition called Global Coalition Against ISIL. And the territorial state is Syria. So in order to enter and leave the territory, I had to get the permission of the territorial state. And of course, then access to the camp was facilitated by the detaining authority. It's also a place which my report makes clear has a number of other states on the territory. So with varying degrees of control over peoples and institutions from the United States to Russia to Iran, it's a conflict zone. It's high risk for the UN. It's also high risk for the people who live there. In the face of the numbers that you described, in a way, it seems uh, strange to zero down onto a small number of detainees, but there are some Australian nationals at these camps and you specifically met them, I understand. What, what details can you share about those encounters? 
Well, I've had a long preoccupation and communication with the Australian government about its nationals. It's my really clear position that states of nationality have an obligation to bring back their nationals. They have a particular obligation to bring back children who had no say in going there or being born there, who are Australian kids with Australian accents. I can attest to that because I heard them firsthand. These are kids who deserve to be home. These are kids who deserve a chance at a decent life, a chance to live a proper normal life in Australia. Kids who really um, shouldn't be in this place and their government has all of the capacities to bring them out. So I zero in on the Australians because the Australian government is a rule of law government. It's a government that's committed to the rule of law. It's a government that extols the virtue of the multilateral system and human rights. So we can't complain about states who don't observe human rights when we don't do it ourselves. What I saw firsthand will make me not sleep for a very long time when I see and saw these young Australian boys at enormous risk, when I saw their mom um, struggling with health issues, struggling to parent in a place where actually no family should be. If there are security reasons to address when you bring them home, address them. But in the meantime, it is not for any civilized society to leave its nationals in such a place. It's not just a breach of international law, but it's a moral, it's a moral failure because it fails these kids who desperately need to be brought home as soon as possible. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with the UN Special Rapporteur for the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights, Fanula Nealine. And Fanula, you'd actually met some of these Australian families before. What's your sense of how their conditions have fared over time? Well, of course, when the camps were first created, this goes back to the fall of Baguz and the overthrow of the caliphate. It was a chaotic, profound conflict. People were being killed. People were fleeing civilians and non-civilians, everyone moving to safety. And it's in that context that these camps emerged. They're clearly more settled now. The Australian nationals I met are in a camp called Al Raj. It's somewhat more organized. There are not 40,000 people. It's a much smaller population there. But nonetheless, I found the conditions in the camp to constitute torture, inhuman and degrading treatment under international law, flimsy tents, no adequate education. I was particularly concerned about the mom and the kids I met who don't have adequate access to health care. In Camp Raj, you pay for your own medications. If you can't pay for them or your government's not paying for them, your kids won't get them. You won't get them. Simple things that kids are struggling with. You know, the kind of childhood things like nits in your hair or worms in your belly. There's no adequate treatment for that. I met two Australian boys whose mom was in despair that she can't even deal with the simplest of childhood diseases. There was one boy I met, he's about to turn 12, and I've communicated with the Australian government about him. And one of the things that's happening to boys between the ages of 10 and 13 in the camps is they're being snatched away from their mothers, taken into what I call arbitrary detention, in some cases incommunicado detention or disappearances. These boys are scared out of their lives. I literally saw it firsthand, Uh, scared of being pulled away from their moms, scared of ending up in an adult prison with adult ISIL fighters. I must say, as the father of a 12-year-old boy, that's pretty hard to hear. So this situation of the arbitrary detention of boys is actually the focus of a lot of your report 
in some ways, because of the sheer scale of the problem, you've described it as mass indefinite and arbitrary detention, and indeed an unending cycle of cradle to grave detention. Could we zoom out and hear about the overall situation of boys in these camps? Sure. So before I left, I had understood and my office had communicated with many governments about our concern that there was what we thought was a practice of boys being taken away. But actually, it was only when I went to my first prison visit to a prison called Alaya Prison. And I start, as I always do, I walk around these prisons and I ask the authorities to open up cells. And the first question I asked was, what's the youngest person in here? What age are you? And the very first cell I went into that was a 12-year-old boy with a group of adult men who'd all been convicted of serious crimes, terrorism, Syrian ISIL detainees who'd been charged and convicted. And I thought to myself, what's a 12-year-old boy doing in this prison, in this space? And as we walked through the prison, we met up to 45 boys, all under the age of 18. Boys, in many cases, who have done nothing. They haven't been charged with any crime. They haven't been convicted of any crime. They're simply, by virtue of their sex and where they happen to be born, the target of this mass arbitrary detention. If we were doing this to girls, there would be a global outcry. I think also as a mother of a boy, I like to think that boys and girls can and should be protected equally, that we treat them with the same kind of respect and rights of human rights, not because they're a girl or a boy, but because they're a child. And this is definitely what is not happening in Northeast Syria. Australian boys are at severe and impending risk of separation from their mothers. And when they are taken away from their mothers, they are put in adult prisons, often with men who have significant battlefield or other exposure. So anyone who thinks this is in the best interest of a child does not understand what that phrase means. And governments who are allowing it to happen are, in my view, particularly coalition governments, are complicit in the mass arbitrary detention and separation of boys. Obviously, the welfare of the boys is one aspect of this problem. And I suppose that brings us to the, the second part of your job title, Fundamental Freedoms While Countering Terrorism. What do you see as the security implications of this mass indefinite and arbitrary detention of boys? Well, one of the things that my report, and it was an enormous puzzle when I arrived by way of answering the question, when I arrived at Al-Hol camp, the largest population in that camp is mostly made up of two Syrians and Iraqis. And I realized as we drove through the gates in a you know armored UN vehicle that there were actually hundreds of men walking around because there's a large male population all, again, by the definitional terms used by authority, these are all ISIL suspected affiliates or people who've had some relationship with ISIL. And so I had a really obvious question in my head, which is why are you separating 10, 11 and 12 year old boys from their moms when hundreds of adult men are walking around? If this was about security, you wouldn't be locking up boys. If you were trying to rehabilitate boys, you would know that the most significant thing, the trauma of separation is likely to undo any good that you think you're doing while pulling kids away from their most grounded needs, that is the needs to be with their family. And if there are isolated cases of children at risk, as there always are, then you would be looking at isolated cases. But the mass arbitrary detention 
of hundreds of boys, which includes Australian boys. There are still Australian boys in these adult detention centers, as far as we believe, or who are unaccounted for. Then this is not in anybody's security interest. This is guaranteed. If you do cradle to grave detention, you can be guaranteed that we will be looking at another cycle of extreme violence on this territory in the next decade. It really is just a, a jaw-dropping situation to contemplate. Special Rapporteur, thank you very much for speaking with us about it on Sunday Extra. Just one final question. What's your next mission as Special Rapporteur? Where are you off to next? So tomorrow we travel to Latin America. My team and I will be in Colombia meeting with human rights activists from around that region. Um, one of the things we're starting to see in Latin America and countries like El Salvador in particular is the use of counterterrorism measures against all kinds of people, including civil society actors. So, you know, the legacy of 9-11 has spread its long tentacles across the globe from Australia to El Salvador to Guantanamo to Syria. And the costs of it are still being felt. And my job, I suppose, is still to address that and try to see if we can bring the rule of law back to the efforts to counterterrorism while upholding human rights. Well, it's a hell of a job when going to South America to look at counterterrorism seems like light relief. But uh, thank you so much for joining us on Sunday Extra. Thank you. Fanula Nealine is UN Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms while countering terrorism. And there's a case called Save the Children versus Minister for Home Affairs, which is currently before the Australian Federal Court. Save the Children is representing the remaining 17 Australian children and nine women seeking repatriation from the camps in northeast Syria. In the response filed by the minister in that case, the government denies that it has a duty to protect or to repatriate those Australian women and children. The case is expected to be heard in September. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.